This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. How you like me now? That's uh, an interesting question here, Kevin. We heard in the last hour over the discussion of the tax bill and the lack of popularity for this bill. It's falling popularity the more people learn about it. Rohit Kumar joined us on the leader of PwC's Washington National Tax Service with an analysis of this tax plan that has now passed both houses of Congress. Um, and uh, Rohit, when we look at this bill, uh, you know, we see the popular. I, I don't want to get too involved with the popularity discussion because. I'd rather find out what's in the bill and people react to it how they'd like. Um, what's in this bill that uh, is, uh, you think, least getting the least amount of attention? You know, so I've been surprised at how little attention has been given to the fact that um, 80% of all individual taxpayers are actually going to get a tax cut uh, because of this bill. You would not know that from just looking at, again, not to get in the polls, but the popularity of the proposal and the people who will end up getting a benefit, there's clearly a disconnect between the two. So and 80% so, of know, all this, people or 80% of the you – know, explain to that number. 80% of all taxpayers. So, you know, if you're married filing jointly, you count as one taxpayer for purposes of the calculation. Um, but, you know, this actually speaks to a larger issue that Republicans are going to have to grapple with over the course of the next year, certainly between now and the midterm election, which is how to go about convincing people that this thing that at least right now they think that they don't like is actually bestowing – some benefit upon them, and that they should be rewarded at the polls uh, come next November, you know, by returning a Republican House and a Republican Senate, if that's what they um, choose to do. And so, you know, that is certainly going to be a challenge. You would expect that this issue is going to be front and center um, in the 2018 campaign, either because someone who voted for it is defending it, um, or someone who voted against it is trying to explain to the voters why they think it was a, you know, the right thing to do to oppose the bill. So, is this? Tax reform, tax overhaul? What is it? You know, it's a mixture of tax reform and tax relief. On the business side, it is very much reform. I mean, this is an architectural change to the tax codes, at least as it relates to the way in which the U.S. taxes corporate income and specifically the income of multinational companies. Um, You know, previous to this bill, I guess it hasn't been signed into law yet, um, as we sit here today, the rule is if you're a U.S. headquartered company, the U.S. asserts the right to tax your worldwide earnings, no matter where those earnings come from. We are relatively alone in the developed world in taking that position. Most other developed economies, and we will soon join them, take the view that we will only tax that which is earned inside our borders. If you earn it outside of our borders, you pay local country tax, but you owe no residual tax uh, to the home country, which means that once you've paid your local country tax, you are free to bring that money back home, and in this case to the United States, and reinvest it here in whatever manner you see fit. Uh, under the existing system, the one pre-tax reform, um, companies were not bringing their money back home. In fact, there was $2.6 trillion of earnings unremitted overseas because to do so would have meant paying that additional layer of U.S. tax. And so in that sense, this is a significant change and a significantly positive development um, for the U.S. economy, for U.S. companies, for their workers, their customers, and the like. On the individual side, it is more, there's, there are pieces of reform, um, but it is, you know, mostly tax relief. And I say that because at least as written, 
all of the individual changes will expire eight years after the bill is signed into law. Now, there's, a, I think, a wide suspicion that uh, future Congress is not just going to let all those individual tax cuts expire. Uh, we saw this uh, play out in 2012 with the fiscal cliff. Uh, but, you know, until those reforms or those changes become permanent, right. it's hard to call that tax reform. I, let, me, let me suggest that the what you do is a lot harder than it sounds and that that deciding, for example, when a, a piece of intellectual property is taxed or created in, you know, Palo Alto and, and used in Ireland should be taxed in Ireland or Palo Alto or, or where that, you know, the, the movement of things like intellectual property and, and these these uh, the what, what an asset is and when it's actually sold is is pretty tough to uh, figure out these days. It is, and actually, one of the challenges we've had, and and the new regime will help us deal with this better. But what we've seen increasingly, and this is especially extant in the digital economy, is foreign governments are saying, "Hey, you're selling here, um, and we want to tax as if the value was created here." And U.S. companies and the U.S. government are saying, "No, wait a second. Just because we're selling into your market, that doesn't mean where the that's where the value was created." The value was created in the United States where the research happened, right, where the innovation occurred. All we're doing in your market is selling. And, yes, we're making a little bit of profit on that sale. And you ought to get, you know, some tax revenue from the profit component of the sale. But the underlying value creation was largely a U.S., you know, piece of property. And the U.S. ought to be uh, the one to be able to assert the taxing rights to that. And we were having a lot of difficulty doing that. Previously, that will get a little bit easier under this new regime. Right. One thing we're seeing in the United States and around the world is certainly this big division between people who are doing well, a small minority, the top one percenters, the top three percenters, and those that are not. Does this tax bill help everyone equally? You know, it's, it's hard to say on the face of it whether it will help everyone equally or not, and that is largely because the, the who gets helped is almost 100% ultimately a function of what does this do to the U.S. economy. If the economy grows more quickly and more robustly as a result of this tax bill, um, then we know from lots of experience and lots of data that a faster-growing economy generates more jobs, pays people more, federal government collects more revenue as a result, and those benefits are broadly shared. Um, if we don't see the resulting economic growth, the economic growth that is predicted and expected and hoped for, um, then it becomes a bit of a closer call. I mean, the bill does make the tax code more progressive. The individual income tax code gets more progressive mm-hmm. under this bill than it, than it is today. And so we are, you know, uh, if you look at the total income tax collections of the federal government, as a result of this bill, a uh, greater percentage of that will be collected from upper-income taxpayers. Right. So it helps maybe at the margins there, but really where the broad benefits are to be experienced, if they are to be experienced at all, is in the faster-growing economy that results from the new tax policy choices that the Congress is making. If indeed it gets a lot faster, because most of the estimates we've seen is maybe a slight kick to the economy, but I guess we'll see uh, as this gets implemented. Rohit Kumar, principal and leader of Washington National Tax Service at PwC, on the phone from the nation's capital. This is Bloomberg. Yeah, that's where he anticipate from the Fed in 2018, a tighter cycle, monetary cycle when it comes to interest rates. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about tax reform, because uh, our next guest says it might provide a, a little bit of a small economic boost. Uh, Dan North, back with us, chief economist at Euler Amis. He joins us on the phone from Baltimore. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. All that good stuff. Merry Christmas to you, Carol. Dan, nice to have you back here. Um, yeah, 
Let's start with tax reform, uh, because I do think (laughs) we're all still trying to make sense of it and the impact it's ultimately going to have and what's permanent, what's temporary. Um, In terms of economic juice, what's it going to do? Carol, I think it is going to provide a little bump temporarily. I mean, I think uh, you could add, I don't know, maybe as much as half a percentage point to GDP over the next couple of years. Um, But... uh, it's, it doesn't come without a price, of course. There's uh, the increased debt level. But, you know, people are uh, saying, oh, my gosh, it's going to add $1.4 trillion to the debt over 10 years. Well, this Congressional Budget Office says already 10 years from now the debt's going to be $30 trillion. So this is going to add less than 5% to what's the another, debt level. What's another trillion between friends? Right. Well, it's 1.4 when you're already going to be at 30. So it's the wrong way. Don't get me wrong. It's, yeah. it's, it's not the way to go, but it's not that big a deal. But getting back to the package, I do think you'll get a bump, and I do think you'll get uh, a lot of bump out of the uh, corporate tax reform. Um, you know, people argue against it that saying it's a big break for already uh, prosperous corporations. They forget that corporate taxes are really passed on to consumers. I mean, uh, you know, if you're a corporation, taxes are an expense, and you build that in, and it gets passed on. So if you get a corporate tax break, I think it's uh, I think it's a good break for the entire economy. And I do think with that tax holiday, you will get some of that money. You'll get that money back, and yes, some of it will be used for buybacks and dividends. But I do think that some of it will be invested, particularly with that incentive you have now with the uh, immediate expensing. So the corporate, uh, the corporate side, I think, is going to be uh, very helpful. Um, we have AT&T out uh, saying that they're going to give $1,000 bonuses to 20,000 people, 200,000 employees, thanks to the tax reform bill. Of course, AT&T is also trying to suing to – the Justice Department has sued AT&T over its Time Warner merger, so maybe this is just a, a clever thing to get the president on, on their side. But uh, do you expect – call me a cynic, sorry. But do you expect uh, that we're going to see uh, companies giving bonuses because uh, and actually trickling down uh, these savings? Or higher wages, Dan. Like that's what I – you know, we all keep waiting for the needle to move on that one uh, lest we remind everybody how important consumer spending is to the economy, right? So a wage boost right. would have more of a kick potentially. Right. So two things here. Yes. So uh, the AT&T folks are going to get a bonus. And some people say, oh, that's not fair. But, you know, this is more income to more consumers, more economic growth. This is this is not a bad thing. This is not uh, corporate profits uh, going out to, you know, investors and shareholders going out to actual people that will spend money. And when you look at consumption, of course, at least for companies who the Justice Department is suing. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Merry Christmas, right? Um, so, but, but if you look at wages, I really think we're on the brink here for a couple of reasons. One, if you look at wages by age group, you're already starting to see some pretty big increases in certain age groups, way out in the older age brackets and in the college, uh, people just coming out of college. So there is a breakthrough there. And now we're at the point for the first time ever where there's a job opening available for every person that's unemployed. And that is surely going to start driving wages up. So I, I really think we're on the cusp of finally seeing that wage Provided growth. you have the skills. Well, that is that is part of it, for sure. And and this gets into the productivity argument. That's what we've been saying for a while. You, you know, you can't hire somebody and pay them a lot if they don't have the skills. But we're starting to see the productivity back up here, right. too. So yeah. it's... Uh, 
it's really taken a surge in the past few quarters, and that's typically what everybody, all economists point to first. Oh, we haven't had wage growth because productivity's been so bad. Well, there goes that argument now because productivity is starting to ta- starting to surge. I suspect when we look at the polls about the popularity of this thing and how it's widely unpopular, this bill is unpo- unpopular, it might be because there are more people on the coast who will not be able to deduct their local uh, taxes that are higher, but the Republicans in Congress weren't elected by them. They were elected by people in red states. Right. So uh, you and I and a lot of people that are listening on the coast are uh, are going to end up a little bit worse off. Uh, no question about it. But most of the other country will be uh, will be in good shape. Those with uh, states that have low income tax rates. Um, but but yeah, the people in the middle, not so much on the coast, were the ones that uh, were the ones that voted for Trump, and they will get that benefit. But it does amaze me that um, so much of the population is opposed to a tax cut. I mean, when has that ever happened before? <laughs> it's kind of like, <laughs> well, and, and many would argue that it was time, certainly on the corporate side, to do something. So um, I think a lot of people would agree with that. And maybe we're just seeing, you know, partisan politics once again, unfortunately. Hey, Dan North, have a great holiday. Chief Economist Euler Ami is joining us on the phone in Baltimore. All right. It's a story that actually Kathleen Hayes mentioned earlier that everybody should check out. Um, And this talks about inside Wall Street's towers that traders are grousing over President Trump's tax plan. We just, of course, heard from the president and senior Republicans about uh, the passive of uh, new tax legislation. This story, by the way, everybody, listen up, among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. Laura Keller is financial reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. So Wall Street not happy? Not happy. That's right, Carol. Essentially, these are people we talk to, a lot of them, you know, they are voting Republicans, and they've been waiting for a tax cut for a long time. You know, some of them told me they don't agree with some social issues, perhaps, on Mm -hmm. the Republican front. But, you know, they stuck with them, or they donated to them even, because they do care about their financials, and they thought Republicans would take care of them. But the ones that, you know, we've talked to for this story uh, do not... not What's not been taken care of for financial people? So, a lot of these deductions that are happening um, are really a, a thorn for a lot of these guys. Um, you know, you've got the mortgage interest rate deduction that's going to be capped now. You have the state and local also capped. And, you know, smaller things too, like job expenses, of course, will be capped. And then the big one for a lot of hedge fund managers is the pass-through. Um, th- that will be a little better for the hedge fund managers than what they're paying now. But they're not going to get as big of a break as some of the smaller businesses that use pass-throughs. Yeah, when we look at uh, some of the, the scoring on this analysis published by the uh, the Joint Committee uh, on Taxation out of the official scorekeeper of Capitol Hill said that uh, for wealthy people, $500,000 million a year, on average, they'd see their tax rates come down 30.9% to 27.8%. And households that make more than a million a year would see their effective tax rate go from 325 to 30%. So for the richest Americans, according to the Joint Committee on Taxation, their tax rates are going to come down. Right. And that's a lot of money when you're making a million dollars a year. Yes. And I think they are, Believe me. are happy. <laughs> I don't know if you're – I'm not in that million-dollar bucket, Corey, so <laughs> I can speak from personal experience. Uh, but, you know, exactly. There is going to be a cut, but it's just not as rich of a cut um, that these that these managers and, and traders wanted to see. And when they couple that with the fact that corporations, however, will be seeing this very long-lasting cut – that is that is really the point that they have a lot of issues over. All right, so okay, boo hoo, 
right? There, I'm sure people sitting out there, well, wait a minute. You financial types have had a lot of benefits for a long time, and I'm sure you're going to do fine. And I don't know if you get stock options and whether that's treated differently. And so I'm not going to cry for you. Yes. And I think that's probably a very fair point, Carol, because these are people generally who are making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year or more. And so they do have the wherewithal to pay any tax that we could put on them, really. One quick question, Laura, though. Is it a case that the financial industry was kind of forgotten in this legislation while a lot of other industries were not and just got about 20 seconds? Yes, I do think that that is the the real gripe here. It's that we got something, but we could have got something more or we were not taken care of as other industries were. Okay, interesting. Hmm. Indeed, uh, that Wall Street Journal, New York, uh, NBC News poll yesterday said only 24% of Americans think the bill is a good idea. We shall see, right? Midterm Bond elections traders included, apparently. <laughs> I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Jamie Cox, managing partner at Harris Financial Group, $650 million in assets under management. Jamie joining us on the phone from Richmond, Virginia. And right now we've got uh, the major market averages a little bit lower here. uh, And they're off their best and worst levels of the day. Jamie, talk to us about this environment uh, and uh, what it says to you about maybe what's to come when it comes to certainly the equity markets. Let's start there. Well, there's been a lot to like about 2017, and I think we probably have – there will be just as much to like about 2018. I mean, with uh, with this actual tax package almost signed by the president, you, also, you, you have what looks to be a setup for lots of companies to do quite well going into the new year. I mean, just at the beginning of uh, the president's press conference, he noted the bonuses and the capital investment by AT&T. Boeing has come out with – a PR release about how excited they are about, you know, returning some of that uh, savings that they're going to get to, you know, making airplanes and bringing uh, jobs back in the U.S. I think, you know, for the first time in a while, we may actually have a couple of years in a row where uh, markets do really, really well, maybe double-digit plus returns, maybe a little bit different than what we've seen this year with growth. Maybe we see a shift to more value-type companies in the future. But all in all, I think we're, we're definitely set up for things to look pretty good into the new year. So, um, you know, I I pointed out earlier, and I I think you can't not note that AT&T is well aware that the Justice Department is suing it and trying to fight its uh, acquisition of Time Warner uh, and and that any good uh, words coming out of the White House for AT&T right now are words that they want to hear, if indeed inspire. Uh, But I I wonder, you know, when you look at this, I'm curious about maybe particular housing and and how – where this might – affect the housing. You know, we've got uh, uh, living here on the coast, as Carol and I do, um, and as so many of our listeners do, uh, we have stations in D.C. and stations in New York and Boston and the Bay Area here. We've got places where uh, the average cost of a home, in five counties in, in California, the average cost of a home is over $750,000. So this isn't something that's affecting rich people. This is affecting literally the average person, the inability to write down all that mortgage interest. And I wonder what that does for the world of housing. Well, I, what would you prefer, a, a deduction uh, on, you know, mortgage interest, or would you prefer, you know, stability in your job? 
And, and personally, I think that if you if you provide companies tax relief and they're able to provide you know job prospects for the future and provide earnings power for you to make higher wages, it becomes less significant whether or not you receive a mortgage interest deduction. So for me, I understand that there's going to be some tax increases on some people, but I would trade a little higher taxes for more certainty in my wages. And I think that's uh, what people will learn as, as some of these particular things come through with the tax plan. It's imperfect, I agree, but I do think that if you have to trade certain things for economic growth, I think it's worth so it. Just, so uh, just to play devil's advocate, yeah. what, what, what you're saying is trickle-down works and that supply-side works. I, I, I do think in this context – when you're talking about housing, what you're when you're talking about the trade-offs of whether you want whether you could get a, a deduction on a fraction of your mortgage interest versus having you know an economic uh, you know four percent or three percent economic growth, which benefits larger groups of people, I think that's a, a, a fair trade. And if you were to then compare the cost of housing, not just on the coast but just everywhere else, it's going to affect, like you said, the higher income areas, but it's not going to affect the largest part of the U.S. So there are going to be some winners and losers, but if you then compare that to the higher wages that people get on the coast, there's going to be some trade-off there with your lower bracketed income, the, the rates on, on, the, on the brackets lowering. There'll be some offsets there as well. So it's not a one-for-one comparison on housing. So to me, housing prices and the housing stability and jobs are far more important than you know, the, the deductibility of interest in, the, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in that one piece. Um, so yeah, okay, and I guess we'll, we'll ultimately see as it begin, you know, be, begins to get implemented. We know this is massive for corporations, right? And I guess it's just ultimately how do they put their savings to work? Because what we've seen in the past, right, with repatriation, is that companies, you know, often do a lot of buybacks and dividends. We've had other guests. I think it was Jeff Sodon from Raymond James who said that no, they're actually, you know, starting. We're starting to see companies, I guess, use their own money on their balance sheets to do some of that. Um, so. I guess we'll have to see ultimately what companies do with this money, whether they provide higher wages. Do they do capital expenditures, but do they do it on automation and robots and machines that ultimately replace people? I guess we have to wait and see. I agree. I agree. The expensing part of this uh, particular plan is going to be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would cite autos as one of the areas in which it's going to be the most interesting next year. If uh, if you were an auto dealer thinking you're going to have a good December, you know that this tax plan basically blew that out of the water, uh, and, and all the automobile automobile purchases are going to be fast forwarded into the 2018 period. So, I think that on the automobile side in, in particular, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, for the first time, you can expense a used vehicle uh, where you couldn't in the past. Whereas, um, uh, you know, uh, it, there's also going to be some extra expensing for luxury automobiles. So I think if you were to look at the largest corporations, that you're, you have stock buybacks and things like that are likely. But if you look at small business, the ability to trickle that money through multiple industries is going to be quite vast when you're talking about expensing equipment like larger equipment items like a car or whatever. That's that's definitely going to have a lot broader impact wow. than probably is being talked about. So you're going to short some car makers here? Uh, I, I think CarMax is actually a good one. I mean, used cars are going to be, you know, preferred in the expensing arrangement where it wasn't before. And also, if you were to look at, you know, a lot of people thought the car industry was going to face recession. 
because interest rates are rising on uh, the ability to borrow money for the automobile loans. And then, you know, you start having, you know, 17 million run rate automobiles that for a while you sort of take up all the unused demand. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that may have changed the nexus and put that off for a while. So, Jamie Cox, managing partner at Harris Financial. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate your, your hard work and your thoughts. Listen to Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, that's exactly, I think, what's on the minds of many right now. How can we be sure about how the new tax overhaul package and legislation is going to impact us? Well, our next guest has been looking into that, specifically at the impact on real estate, entertainment, pensions, and a lot more. Let's get to some of the specifics. Joe Perry is with us, tax and business services leader at Markham, and he joins us on the phone from Melville, New York. And, of course, you guys are an independent public accounting firm, an advisory firm, so these are the kind of things you have to dig into for your clients. So, Joe, let's get right to it. For the real estate market, we've been talking about this a little bit earlier about uh, the mortgage interest deduction and capping that and the impact that could have on the housing market. How do you see this overhaul package uh, for taxes impacting real estate broadly? Well, first, thanks for having me. Um, I would say that uh, really the detail, all the details have to be um, uh, viewed from a standpoint of some of it is obvious and some of it, the devil's in the details, of much of which may come later. But as it relates to the real estate market, um, I think the real estate market will be affected maybe in two ways and bifurcated to the higher end market and potentially the lower end market. So the question is the debate of high net worth individuals that are in financial services, will they be willing now to have a tip, this be the tipping point to move out of New York uh, or San Francisco and go to low tax jurisdictions such as Florida or Texas? And if that's the case, then you think about it. We ran scenarios for some of Markham's clients at the higher end, and they potentially could save 5 or $10 million. And that's not, uh, that's really not uh, pocket change. So in that regard, if you were going to, let's say, have a higher end house and you're going to sell that house in the market, you might have some people that are going to flood down to Florida because they, they, can, they can decide to uh, live there in financial services and actually uh, have their clients satisfied down there. So I think on the higher end, there's a possibility, but on the lower end, uh, it could be effective too. For those people that were saving money to buy a house and used to, as many of us did when we bought our first house, use the tax advantage of having the mortgage interest and the real estate taxes help fund that payment every month, that's potentially going to go away. So I think in the middle of the country, it's more likely that people are less affected. But in the coastal areas and high-tax states, generally high-tax states are not just income tax. They also associate with real estate tax. You look at Long Island or San Francisco, um, and that equates to a higher-end market value. So I, I do think there's going to be some fallout to some degree, and how that shakes out, only time will tell. But there will be an impact. Uh, indeed, and, and I do look at Long Island and San Francisco because those are the places where I spend most of my time. And uh, it makes me wonder, you know, if this only applies to new mortgages, but it makes me wonder, you know, uh, on the margin, if I'm trying to sell my house that an average house in five counties in California, for example, uh, the average cost, not a high-end house, but the average cost, costs $750,000. 
my my house probably costs more than that. As to a lot, uh, the number of buyers available for that will have less financial leverage to buy those houses, so it can't help real estate prices. Well, that's that's right. I guess uh, it, it really depends, right? If you were smart enough to be in the market and you were looking for that down payment to grow as opposed to a CD, uh, you might have more of a down payment and it might offset uh, some of that. So it's hard to tell each situation is different. But I do think that uh, uh, on the whole, it's going to be harder for those people that are on the margins looking to buy a million dollar house to, to, to afford that. There's less in the market. What's interesting, too, though, you know, we often bring this up when we're talking about mortgage deductions, right? In Canada, there is no mortgage interest deduction. And yet home ownership, I think, is higher than what we see in the United States. Um, So, I mean, people buy homes. Yep, it's nice to get that deduction. um, But they also buy to be part of a community, right? Or for schools for their kids or for a lot of reasons. Well, there's a lot of reasons, not only that, but if we think about it, right, uh, I know in all our uh, offices in the major cities, um, there are most of the young people really want to go to the cities and live. So they haven't bought the house. They're getting married later. So now you see some of that generation actually having children and want to go and move to a house. To your point, actually live in those locations. And that becomes a question. Do I really want to now go to these high-tax states, or would I like to go somewhere where it's more tax-friendly? So at least I'm not losing that deduction in the real estate taxes or even the income taxes. And I, th- so, I thought I also sorry. saw some – no, that's, forgive me. I interrupted, so forgive me. But I just wanted to get in the point that I, I, I also – I think I've read some rumblings about what states might be trying to do to compensate people you know, in these high-income uh, tax states. Well, well, states are doing quite a bit. So first, uh, there was a strategy where you should prepay your 2018 tax returns, and many states didn't have the capability of taking that money. They changed that in the law, and they couldn't. But one of the byproducts was many of the states, like Pennsylvania, was trying to take that money. The same is happening with real estate, and, and I think mm. many people are confused. They think they can't now prepay real estate taxes, but you really can. Okay, that was only for state income taxes, real estate taxes, you can. So the question I always get when I run into people right. are, can I, should I prepay my real estate tax? And the answer is, if the county... Uh, or the jurisdiction takes it, you 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 should take it this year. Because next year, especially if you fill up to that $10,000 mark, you're losing that deduction. Listen, I think it's fascinating that we just spent, I don't know, the whole time talking about real estate. We didn't even get into other areas, which just shows it's going to take some time for us to really understand how this all plays out uh, in the new tax package. Joe Perry, nice to talk with you, though. Tax and business services leader at Markham on the phone from Melville, New York. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, time to talk about some of the stocks on the move in today's trading session. S&P 500, 217 names higher today, 286 lower, two unchanged. 
going to bring up uh, something moving and shaking, uh, and that is uh, shares of Chipotle Mexican Grill. Number two decliner in the S&P 500 today, down 4.6% uh, to 298.67 so a share. I'm not. Down more than 14 bucks. Uh, no, it's like, oops, uh, here we go. Uh, Chipotle Mexican Grill suffering its worst stock decline in more than a month, Corey, on a report of a possible illness outbreak in Los Angeles, renewing fears about uh, the company's food safety crisis. The local health department's acute communicable disease control unit is investigating illnesses tied to a location uh, in L.A., according to Business Insider. Chris Arnold, uh, he's a spokesman for Chipotle. I've talked with him many times. He said the company is aware of reports of sickness on user-generated websites, but not of any complaints made to local health officials. So, anyway... You know, any sign of this, understandably so, and you've got investors kind of running for the exit door. And uh, this company's down about 21% so far. But as we know, they've been struggling to bounce back from that uh, E. coli crisis back in 2015. Well, I'll be positive. You can always count on that. Yeah. BlackBerry. Revenue's down 22% again. Wow. Five years Every single quarter, you had declines in revenues. If you give them, except for a couple of quarters, they've got uh, basically seven years of declines in revenues or six years of declines in revenues. But the stock's up 12% today. Why? Why? Well, two reasons. Okay. There's a lot of chatter on the online about uh, the possibility they'll be getting into blockchain. I kid you not. But the company also out there uh, with, with uh, guidance for revenues higher than where the street had been. So, again, the numbers were weak. Uh, the numbers – the revenues were significantly lower. Again, a 22 percent year-over-year decline. Last year, they declined 47 percent. So it wasn't like it was a, you know an easy mark from the previous – or a hard mark from the previous year to, to top. Nonetheless, it's still another 22 percent smaller. This business is just a rapidly shrinking beast that is BlackBerry. BlackBerry in the quarter had $226 million in revenues. Uh, you wonder what those were uh, in, the, in the third the November quarter, uh, let's say in 2010, when I first darkened the doors at Bloomberg? Yes. $4 billion for a quarter. Wow. Now it's about $220 million. Uh, but that uh, expectation yeah. for future growth is a little bit higher on the, on the revenue side than some of the analysts on Wall Street had expected. Surprising the analysts is good enough to get a big pop in the stock. All right. Hey, you mentioned uh, Red Hat, uh, the number one decliner in the S&P 500. That stock uh, down 5.3% in today's session, down to $122, sh- 20, $122 a share, excuse me, uh, down almost 7 bucks. What's Red Hat doing this year? It's up about 75%. Uh, they came out with some numbers. Uh, third quarter billings growth, 18.5%. That actually was above, almost 3% above uh, street estimates, but the magnitude of the beat was lower than in the past three quarters. At least that's according to Piper Jaffrey uh, analyst Alex Zukin. He put that out in note. So we've seen some pressure on Red hat in today's session. Let's get to the volatility index report on this Wednesday. And the VIX in the Wednesday session, Corey, down 3.5%. The VIX closing at 9.68. All right, Corey, what do you got? You got a stock of the day for me? I do have a stock of the day for you, one that I've never even looked at before. But uh, staying with this trend, Seven Stars Cloud Group, <laughs> ticker SSC, mm-hmm. again, one that I haven't looked at before, saw a huge pop in its shares today. It's got a $350 million market cap now, thanks to a 27%, sorry, 29% jump in the stock today. Uh, it is, uh, it's based in Beijing. 
And guess what they claim to do now? Blockchain. They bought a 27% stake in something called Delaware Board of Trade Holdings, a first and only blockchain alternative trading system licensed by the SEC. They gave that company 1.6 million shares of stock. And instantly, it went off to the races for shares of SSC, Seven Stars Cloud, again, a Beijing-based company, mm. uh, with uh, uh, virtually no revenues. They had uh, $30 million in revenues in the most recent quarter reported. But uh, nonetheless, stock off to the races with the announcement that uh, blockchain uh, is, is, is going to be part of its business and even trading in stocks in blockchain. Uh, and that, that 27% acquisition of Delaware uh, 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 trading, uh, Delaware Board of Trade Holdings, I should say, um, uh, just sent this thing flying. Uh, and again, they issued 1.6 million shares of, of common stock uh, to make the transaction happen. No cash exchanging hands. Um, but uh, uh, the department, this uh, depart- Delaware Board of Trade Company, uh, says it's a FINRA registered firm. Uh, and that the suggestion there is that some kind of trading could actually happen with securities. Of course, the problem is with blockchain, uh, right. with Bitcoin, I should say, one of the great things about Bitcoin is that uh, it has uh, ability to record all of the transactions and all the things that happened to it historically, which would be wonderful in the world of securities if you knew who the traders were, who bought and sold, which is also a requirement of the trading of stocks, right? right. Well, blockchain is completely anonymous. You can't know who was on both sides of a trade. It can't be stored in the very information into Bitcoin. So the idea that you could use Bitcoin to trade stocks and also know who your customers are are complete opposite ends of the spectrum. You can't have a know your customer rule and yeah. also use Bitcoin to trade stocks. You would have to do one or the other. And I would suggest that we're not you – know, even even in an administration that uh, sees every uh, customer protection, it seems, as a, as a regulation to get rid of, I don't think we're going to get rid of rules that require uh, trading of stocks to know who's on each side of a trade and encourage insider trading. Yeah, check out the holdings in that one too, the bulk of it. Uh, is it the CEO that's uh, got the mo- – yeah, it looks like it, the chairman and CEO. Hmm. All right. Um, fascinating. And uh, we'll have obviously more on blockchain, on Bitcoin, I'm sure, in 2018. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV. 